Hi, this is Leon Nafok. You're listening to the Audible original podcast, Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis. I'm here to tell you that there is a new season of Fiasco coming soon to Audible. It's a series about the 1984 shooting of four black teenagers on the New York City subway by a white man who thought he was about to be robbed. The incident turned the shooter into a symbol of vigilante justice and forced a national reckoning over crime, fear, and racism. Fiasco Vigilante will be available on July 27th only from Audible. Visit audible.com slash fiasco to learn more and sign up for your free trial. Previously on Fiasco. Bush wins one round, Gore wins the next. It is a legal slugfest. We've gone from protest certification last night and now contest. Florida's ticking clock becomes a second adversary. December 12th is key, the day Florida certifies its electors. The Republican-controlled state legislature scheduled a special session to name electors just in case the state Supreme Court rules against Governor Bush. By a vote of four to three, the majority of the court has ordered a manual recount of all undervotes in any Florida county where such a recount has not yet occurred. The recount shall commence immediately. If you do not like political chaos, it's about time to head for the storm cellar. Sandra Day O'Connor had a lot on her plate on November 7th, 2000. It was election day, for one thing, and she had plans to attend a watch party at a friend's house. But first, O'Connor was due at the United States Supreme Court. Uh, we'll hear argument now, number 991257, Carol M. Browner v. American Trucking Association. Where she and the other eight justices were scheduled to hear oral arguments in a case involving the Clean Water Act. Now, why would Congress want that advice uh, on economic and energy effects? If O'Connor also had an important personal matter to attend to. Her husband, John, had been sick, and she was trying to gather information on his condition. On election day... Sandra O'Connor spoke to her husband's neurologist for the first time about John's Alzheimer's. This is journalist Evan Thomas. He's the author of First, a biography of Justice O'Connor for which he interviewed her family members and former clerks, as well as her husband's neurologist. According to Thomas, John had been experiencing memory loss for several years, but he had been hesitant to call it what it was. Now, on the phone with his doctor... Justice O'Connor was trying to get a handle on her husband's diagnosis. John had finally started using the word Alzheimer's to talk about his condition. And she asked if there was perhaps some experimental program that he could be put into to keep the loss of memory away for as long as possible. Was there some kind of experimental program that could buy him time? Sandra Day O'Connor had a decision to make. She and her husband were both 70 years old. And she'd always thought that eventually they would move back to Arizona, where they had settled a few years into their marriage. If the two of them wanted to do that before his dementia got worse, O'Connor would need to retire from the Supreme Court sooner rather than later. The question was whether or not she could. They had considered retirement as early as 1996. President Clinton was president, so they didn't want to retire while there was a Democrat there. O'Connor was a Republican. And if Al Gore won the 2000 election... She knew that she would face enormous pressure to remain on the bench, at least through his first term. According to her son, Scott, they were at least thinking about retiring if there was a Republican president, if Bush won. Good evening. President Reagan today named a woman to the Supreme Court, and another barrier fell. O'Connor had been a justice for 19 years. She was the first woman ever nominated to the Supreme Court. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public. For years, O'Connor was a reliable member of the court's conservative flank. But as the court moved to the right under Reagan and George H.W. Bush, she increasingly found herself occupying the court's ideological center. And that was a powerful place to be. When Senator Day O'Connor was on the court, for many years, she simply was the swing justice at the court. This is Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the law for Slate. Lithwick started covering the Supreme Court in 1999. She was a Reagan appointee who tacked left on affirmative action, on abortion, on church-state separation. There was no case that wasn't 
decided in some ways by O'Connor if it was a 5-4 case. According to Lithwick, O'Connor didn't get a lot of respect from legal scholars. She was derided often in polls by snotty uh, law students as the stupidest justice. I mean, people really didn't think she was, as a doctrinal matter, the smartest justice, but what she was was a pragmatist. And so she tended to sort of stand in the middle, four or four on either side, and say, what's going to fix this? O'Connor didn't like to be thought of as some unprincipled weather vane who turned whichever way the wind was blowing. Here again is Evan Thomas. Justice O'Connor cared about the practical impact of a Supreme Court decision. She, she wasn't in love with doctrine. She didn't look closely at doctrinal consistency. What she really cared about was the practical impact. How is this going to play in the real world? On election night 2000, the O'Connors went to their friend's party and watched the returns on a television set in the basement den. Shortly before 8 o'clock, the networks called Florida for Gore. A big call to make. CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a roadblock the size of a boulder to George W. Bush's path to the White House. Given the rest of the electoral map, it looked like Gore was about to clinch the presidency. Two witnesses later told Newsweek that Justice O'Connor was visibly disappointed. This is terrible, she said, before leaving to get a plate of food. According to Newsweek, John O'Connor tried to clarify for the people still in the room that his wife was only upset because a Gore presidency would force her to wait another four years before retiring. But Gore was not elected president that night. And later, as all the lawsuits being filed in Florida were winding their way through county and circuit courts, O'Connor's son suggested to his mother that the recount battle could end up in front of the Supreme Court. It was a jarring thought. The Supreme Court was supposed to stay above politics. That was the premise of its legitimacy as an institution. If O'Connor's son was right, if the court got involved in a case that directly affected which party took control of the White House, that premise would be tested in dramatic fashion. But Justice O'Connor did not think that was going to happen. And she told her son that he was being ridiculous. I'm Leon Nafok. From Luminary Media and Prologue Projects, this is Fiasco. Lawyers for Al Gore and George W. Bush head into the U.S. Supreme Court. She was trying to save the country from what she saw as a car crash. This is probably the most significant decision in 30 years. You cannot imagine a more tense, pressure-packed moment. On this week's season finale, how the 2000 election was put to rest in a Supreme Court case called Bush v. Gore, and how a ruling that was explicitly designed to set no precedent ended up changing everything. I didn't know this before I started researching the 2000 election, but Bush v. Gore was not the first lawsuit to crawl out of the swamps of the Florida recount and reach the U.S. Supreme Court. I had always thought the court swooped in at the very end. But this earlier case preceded Bush v. Gore by a full 15 days. Drawing on very rarely used legal powers, the Supreme Court has, for the first time in American history, decided to step into a legal dispute in the midst of a presidential election. The case centered on the first big ruling handed down by the Florida Supreme Court during the recount. This was the one you heard about in Episode 3, the one that forced Secretary of State Catherine Harris to wait nearly two extra weeks before certifying the election results. Here's the latest. Florida's highest state court has blocked the Secretary of State what it basically means, in an opinion the justices reached unanimously, is that the hand counts continue and the hand counts count. The new deadline set by the Florida Supreme Court had briefly given the Gore campaign reason for hope. But the Bush team quickly appealed the ruling. And this time, there was only one place left for the case to go. To the U.S. Supreme Court, Bush is arguing that the state court overreached its authority and rewrote election law in a way that violates the U.S. Constitution. In their petition to the U.S. Supreme Court, Bush's lawyers argued that by pushing back the certification deadline, the Florida Supreme Court had improperly changed an election law put in place by the Florida State Legislature. In doing so, they had violated Article II of the Constitution and Title III, Section 5 of the U.S. Federal Code. On November 24th, 
the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. A huge legal gamble pays off for the Bush campaign. Oral arguments were scheduled for December 1st. The battle for the White House goes before the U.S. Supreme Court. Bush, Gore, and a day for the history books. There was something momentous about the Supreme Court intervening in a presidential election. But by the time oral arguments rolled around on December 1st, the case had lost a lot of its urgency. The certification had come and gone. Catherine Harris had already declared Bush the winner. What difference did it make now whether the Florida Supreme Court had been wrong to set the new deadline? But Bush did not want to drop the case, and the Supreme Court kept it on the docket. We'll hear our argument this morning in number 00836, George W. Bush versus the Palm Beach County canvassing. In oral arguments, the Gore side made the case that extending the deadline did not amount to passing a new law. It was merely a judicial interpretation of an existing law, something judges did all the time. As a way of shedding light on the provisions that are in conflict, so long as it's not done in a way that conflicts with a federal mandate. The Bush side made the opposite point. What if it had been the Florida State Legislature that decided to change the date of the certification deadline? Wouldn't that be considered a new law? Why was it any less of a new law just because it came from the Florida Supreme Court? Here's Ted Olson speaking at oral arguments. I would emphasize that what the Florida Supreme Court did is basically essentially say, we're rewriting the statute, we're changing it. When they issued their ruling three days after oral arguments, the Supreme Court showed a reluctance to interfere with the proceedings in Florida. The case is submitted. The Supreme Court's historic hearing ended with a less-than-historic decision. Instead of weighing in on the constitutional issues at hand, the court sent the case back to the Florida Supreme Court and asked them to provide an explanation of how they had reached their decision. Florida Supreme Court Chief Justice Charles Wells was puzzled by the request. The timing just didn't make sense to him. I thought the whole week before they issued their order that they were going to enter an order finding that the case had become moot, just dismissed that appeal. Instead, the Supreme Court was asking Wells and his colleagues to go back to the case and take another stab at it. They wanted us to revisit it, but we were busy visiting other (laughs) something else at that point. You heard about the something else that the Florida Supreme Court was busy with in last week's episode. It was the contest lawsuit that the Gore team filed on November 27th after Catherine Harris certified the election for Bush. Good evening. It was like an earthquake in Florida this afternoon. The Florida Supreme Court did a life-saving exercise on Al Gore's campaign to be president. This was the big one, the one that culminated on Friday, December 8th, in the Florida court shocking both campaigns by ordering a last-minute hand recount of every undervote in the state. A manual recount of the so-called undervotes. And they wanted in every part of the state, 64 counties, more than 43,000 votes. Undervotes, as you'll recall, refers to ballots that didn't register a vote for president, often because someone didn't punch through their ballot all the way. The Florida court's ruling to manually review all these undervotes created instant uncertainty. With so many potential new votes, the race was anybody's game for the first time since Election Day. The Bush team once again turned to the U.S. Supreme Court this time to file an emergency petition to halt the recount. The Bush campaign responds instantly, preparing a broad legal counterattack, hoping to stop the court-ordered recount before it even begins. Ted Olson, a Bush lawyer with years of experience arguing before the Supreme Court, thought it was obvious that the statewide manual recount could not be done fairly or quickly enough to make the Electoral College deadline of December 12th. It couldn't possibly be done The earlier recount procedures of just four counties had been moving along very slowly. There was no chance that a statewide recount could be done by the time of that deadline. And so my concern was that the Florida Supreme Court was either ignoring those deadlines or wasn't paying sufficient attention to the legal impact of those deadlines. Bush's 42-page petition was filed at 9.18 p.m. on Friday, December 8th, mere hours after the Florida Supreme Court ruling was announced. When the petition reached the U.S. Supreme Court, it fell to Justice Anthony Kennedy to decide what to do with it. The first step, an emergency request to Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's assigned to that region, asking him to block the recount while the court considers whether to take the case. Justice Kennedy was a Republican appointee with an independent streak. Like Justice O'Connor... Kennedy was often a swing vote. Though he was traditionally conservative on a lot of issues, he also liked to surprise people. 
Here again is Dahlia Lithwick. I think the two of them were very much what I would call now kind of country club Republicans, the kind of 80s Republicans who were socially conservative but not rabid movement conservatives the way uh, we've seen. But Kennedy as a swing justice was very different. Kennedy was a reliable vote for conservative outcomes. But on a handful of cases, most notably, you know, the the, the gay marriage case that came about after Bush v. Gore, uh, he would defect and vote uh, with the left wing of the court. After the Bush lawyers filed their petition, Justice Kennedy wanted Chief Justice Rehnquist to call a conference as soon as possible so they could discuss the case. Well, I was in uh, Washington in my office, and uh, I remember the Chief Justice called me and told me that we should have a conference. That's former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Stevens retired from the court in 2010. I interviewed him in 2019, just a few months before he died at the age of 99. During the year, I came down here to Florida, and we had this place down here, And uh, my wife and two daughters were planning to fly to Florida on that uh, Saturday, as I remember it. Stevens, who was one of the most liberal members of the court, was skeptical that they needed to intervene in the Florida recount. The only justification for doing so would be if Bush, the petitioner, was at risk of suffering irreparable harm if the vote counting were allowed to go on. Stevens didn't see how that was possible, and he made his feelings clear to Chief Justice Rehnquist on Friday evening. I told him that the request for a stay didn't seem to have any merit uh, because there was no showing of irreparable injury. And I thought I would like to go ahead with my plans and my family. Rehnquist told Stevens that their conservative colleague Antonin Scalia, known to his friends as Nino, felt strongly that the petition should get a hearing right away. He told me, as I remember, that Uh, Nino thought the issue was a serious one, and we ought to have a conference on it, so we should plan on meeting the following morning. Justice Stevens' vacation was canceled. He wasn't going to Florida. Florida was coming to him. On the morning of Saturday, December 9th, County canvassing boards all over Florida pulled out their boxes of month-old ballots, plugged in their vote-counting machines, and started the process of separating out their undervotes. You are looking right now at a live picture of the Leon County Library in Tallahassee, Florida. That's where a manual recount of some 9,000 so-called undervotes from Miami-Dade County is being counted at this hour. Some counties had thousands of undervotes to count, while others had just a few dozen. The judge overseeing the process gave them all until the following day at 2 p.m. to get the job done. If the recount could be completed by Sunday, December 10th, that would leave Florida two whole days to seat its 25 electors before the Electoral College deadline. As recounts got underway, representatives from the Bush and Gore campaigns fanned out across the state to monitor the proceedings. Demonstrators from both sides chant outside public buildings as public servants count ballots on the inside. Meanwhile, in Washington, the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court met in their conference room to discuss the Bush campaign's petition to stay the recount. It was obvious right away that the room was split along ideological lines, with Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy both joining the conservatives in support of granting the stay. According to Evan Thomas, O'Connor was primarily motivated by a desire to contain the chaos before it got worse. In the moment she was trying to save the country from what she saw as a car crash, that if the recount went on in the state of Florida, it was possible that Gore would get ahead. Then you would have two sets of electors. In this scenario, there would be two competing sets of electors, and the next president would be determined through partisan warfare in Congress. That was something O'Connor wanted to avoid. As the Supreme Court prepared to make the stay order public, Justice Stevens was dismayed. I thought addressing this issue in this way would hurt the court's reputation. The court generally avoids unnecessarily participating in political controversies, and, and I thought here it was entering into uncharted territory. 
At 2.40 p.m. on Saturday, December 10th, news broke that the court had granted the stay. Hang on one second, David. They're interrupting me now. Bob Franken at the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington has a bit of news. Bob, what are they saying up there? Very big news. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to put a stay on the recount in Florida. There are a few hundred county election workers across this state rather bewildered right about now. Most of the canvassing boards throughout Florida were still counting at this point. I understand this is a live picture from Collier County, Florida, where the recount has in fact stopped because of the order of the U.S. Supreme Court. If it says stop, I'm going to stop. In fact, we're stopping right now until I see if we need to keep on stopping. A few counties had finished, and a few had not yet managed to start. David Boys, one of Gore's most trusted attorneys, was at a sports bar called Andrews in Tallahassee when he saw the news on one of the TV screens. And I thought it was a mistake. It just didn't seem possible that the United States Supreme Court was going to intervene in this election to pick the winner and to do so without even hearing argument. They were going to stop the votes from being counted. It was uh, obviously presented by Justice Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, who's in charge of this area. I'm reading now. It is ordered that the mandate of the Florida State Supreme Court is hereby stayed pending further order of the court. It is another dramatic twist in this election saga, now 32 days old, a saga that has left the campaigns, the candidates, and the country on an extraordinary roller coaster ride that is not over yet. Ordinarily, a stay is a stopgap measure, a way for judges to freeze a situation in place until they have a chance to review it. But this stay was different. Because of the timeline hanging over the recount process, with the Electoral College deadline of December 12th just three days away, the Supreme Court's order to halt the recount all but guaranteed that it could not be done in time, even if the court ended up deciding to let it resume. Even the vice president's battle-hardened legal team appeared shocked at the setback. There's no doubt that by delaying it, it has created a very serious issue as to whether that count can fully be completed or not by December 12th. Though Gore was despondent when he heard about the stay, he remained true to his instincts as an institutionalist. In a message sent to his top aides on his BlackBerry, Gore wrote, please make sure that no one trashes the Supreme Court. But the real risk might have been the Supreme Court justices trashing each other. Justice Stevens was so unhappy with the majority's decision that he wrote a dissent that his three liberal colleagues signed on to. Justice Stevens wrote that stopping this last chance recount may cause irreparable harm to Gore and that it will inevitably cast a cloud on the... Stevens argued that Bush's claim of irreparable harm was ludicrous, that if anyone should be worried about irreparable harm, it was Gore. And it didn't seem to me that getting the right answer in a contested election could ever be irreparable harm. That's what you're you're trying to do in elections. I asked Stevens to read part of his dissent out loud. Counting every legally cast vote cannot constitute irreparable harm. On On the other hand, there is a danger that a stay may cause irreparable harm to respondents and, more importantly, the public at large, because of the risk that the entry of the stay would be tantamount to a decision on the merits in favor of the applicants. Preventing the recount from being completed will inevitably cast a cloud on the legitimacy of the election. But it seems to me it makes some sense. <laughs> Justice Scalia was so angered by Stevens' dissent that he decided to write a rebuttal. Scalia argued that if Bush was right that he'd won the election, the counting of votes that are of questionable legality would cast a cloud over his victory. Count first and rule upon legality afterwards, Scalia wrote, is not a recipe for producing election results that have the public acceptance that democratic stability requires. These are two justices that are going after each other with hammer and tong. And Scalia is stating the Bush case far more strongly than the Bush lawyers state in their briefs. It's impossible to overstate how unusually fast the Supreme Court was moving. Bush's petition had come in on December 8th. The stay had been granted December 9th. And now oral arguments have been scheduled for December 11th. At 11 a.m., total of one and a half hours for oral arguments. This is lightning speed, of course, by the Supreme Court. The court never likes to rush anything. In their usual schedule, months and months go by between when oral arguments are heard and when rulings are issued. That gestation period leaves time for opinions to be written and rewritten many times over. Occasionally, it leaves enough time for justices to change their minds. With the Electoral College deadline looming, 
such a leisurely approach wasn't possible. The Supreme Court was on a violently compressed schedule, and that meant the Bush and Gore lawyers were too. They had just over 24 hours to write and submit their briefs. David Boies led the charge on the Gore side. This did not come down to nuances of federal law. It came down to what had happened in Florida. And I knew that better than anybody. Boyes' central argument was that the Florida Supreme Court wasn't making new laws. They were just interpreting ones that were already on the books. The Bush team insisted this was wrong, that in fact the Florida Supreme Court had changed the rules of the election in the middle of the game, and that in doing so, they had usurped the power of the state legislature. But the last part of the Bush brief also included a different argument, one based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Here again is Bush lawyer Ted Olson. The elasticity of the rules and the procedures put the power in the vote counters. Every time they changed the rules, they could put their thumb on the scale to make it come out a certain way. When you have almost a tie in terms of the numbers, all you have to do is change a certain amount of those votes to to change the outcome. It was hardly a secret that the manual recounts were being conducted under different standards in different counties. Some places were counting dimple chads, while others were throwing them out. The Bush argument was that this inconsistent application of ballot standards was itself unconstitutional. This is an ABC News special report. Hello again, everybody. I'm Peter Jennings at ABC News headquarters, and there is the U.S. Supreme Court with its activists outside, both for the Democrats and the Republicans today. Oral arguments in Bush v. Gore were scheduled to start at 11 a.m. on Monday, December 11th. Lawyers for Al Gore and George W. Bush head into the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington to argue the case. In about two minutes, the second oral argument in 10 days involving the 2000 presidential election is scheduled to get underway. Dahlia Lithwick had only recently started attending oral arguments, but she already knew the drill. You'd sort of line up in the corridor. I remember they line you up a long time before arguments start, and they march you in, and they take away your everything but your pen and your notepad. Oddly, Lithwick and most of the other reporters were seated in such a way that they couldn't actually see the justices as they spoke from the bench. Instead, they just heard their voices. We'll hear argument now in number 00949, George W. Bush and Richard Cheney versus Albert Gore at Al. Beyond the first couple of rows, everybody's view is obstructed. Everybody's sitting behind curtains and columns, all the reporters. Uh, and there was, at the time, uh, somebody from the press office at the court who would give hand signals so you would know four, Justice Scalia speaking, six. And, and that was how you knew who was talking. The air in the room was stifling as Lithwick and her colleagues tried to make out what was happening. My memory of it is that it was, I mean almost hanging from the lamps. Like, it was so packed and so hot, and that there was a feeling, uh, at least in the press uh, section of the room, that we were watching history. You don't often have a sense that you're going to be telling, you know, your grandkids, like, I was there, I was in the room. Ted Olson remembers the atmosphere as one of spectacle and high stakes. The entire world was watching. The Supreme Court was surrounded by the satellite trucks of the various broadcast networks. The court was filled with political figures, members of the United States Senate, journalists, and people all over the world were watching and listening. Despite having argued before the Supreme Court on 13 other occasions, Olson found that he was not immune to the pressure. You cannot imagine a more tense, pressure-packed, moment than standing up in front of the, all of those people and the nine justices with all of that at stake. And I think all of us felt, for God's sakes, I hope I can get these words out. Um, one of the lawyers made a mistake of, of three times, I think he did, called the justices by the wrong name. Justice Barr, what I'm saying is, is that I'm, I'm Justice Souter. You better cut that out. <laughs> I will now give up. Your adrenaline is going to be pumping through you. So you're, anybody says, are you nervous? Of course you're nervous. And if, if you're not nervous, you're not a sentient human being or a lawyer. So you have to focus on what you're saying. You have to focus on what the justices are saying when they interrupt you, and they interrupt you constantly. 
No, I don't think it's, it's, it's necessary. So your reliance on, you really are not relying on those. Well, cases. I think those cases support the argument, but we, as well, we. Except you've got to choose one version of the word legislature or the other. I think in different contexts it's not necessarily, necessarily the case, um, and certainly it is true that legislatures can. As the hearing wore on, the main thing anyone was listening for were clues as to how the two swing justices, O'Connor and Kennedy, were thinking about the case. O'Connor sounded baffled that canvassing boards wouldn't just use ballot standards that were based on the instructions that voters received on Election Day. Well, why isn't the standard the one that voters are instructed to follow, for goodness sakes? I mean, it couldn't be clear. Yeah. I mean, why, why don't we go to There was something else bothering O'Connor, too. The Florida Supreme Court had not responded in any way to the Supreme Court's remand and request for clarification on their earlier ruling. And I did not find uh, really a response by the Florida Supreme Court to this court's remand in the case a week ago. It just seemed to kind of bypass it and assume that all those changes and deadlines were, were just fine and they'd go ahead and adhere to them. And I found that troublesome. Your Honor, if, if, if I could. It was about 19 minutes into oral arguments when the issue of equal protection entered the discussion. But it wasn't Ted Olson who brought it up. It was Justice Kennedy. Well, and I thought your point was that the process is being conducted in violation of the Equal Protection Clause and as its standards. And the Due Process Clause, and we, we know is now... Kennedy latched onto the issue and tried to get answers from David Boies. But because the Equal Protection argument had been such a small part of the Bush brief, Boies had spent most of his time preparing to talk about other aspects of the case. I think there is a uniform standard. The standard is whether or not the intent of the voter is reflected by the ballot. That is the uniform standard that, throughout, very throughout the Very general. It runs throughout the law. Even a dog knows the difference in being stumbled over and being kicked. We know it. Now, you would say that from the standpoint of the Equal Protection Clause, could each county give their own interpretation to what intent means so long as they are in good faith uh, and with some reasonable basis finding intent? I think could that vary from county to county? I think it can vary from individual to individual. The sudden focus on equal protection was surprising. And though it was Kennedy who brought it up, other justices seemed to share his concern. And not just the conservative ones either. And why this question of equal protection for all Florida voters keeps coming up. Because Justice Souter was saying, I'm troubled by this, Justice Kennedy is troubled by this, Justice Breyer is troubled by this. Now, so I think that was something that, that really... There was something weird about the equal protection claim. Though the Bush team was applying it narrowly to the problem of inconsistent hand recounts in Florida, its premise was that there was something wrong with the decentralized way in which all American elections are carried out. Taking the argument to its logical conclusion, the country's entire electoral system was one big violation of equal protection. In any event, by the time oral arguments came to a close, it was clear that the court would be treating the equal protection argument as much more than a sideshow. But how exactly they would respond to it was anyone's guess. The nine justices met in their conference room to figure out who stood where. Stevens and Ruth Bader Ginsburg felt strongly that the court should allow the recount to resume. But Kennedy was still focused on Bush's equal protection argument, and it appeared that two of his more liberal colleagues, Stephen Breyer and David Souter, were hung up on it as well. And they both indicated that their feeling that it was a possible violation, and I've never been able to understand why. Stevens tried to propose a compromise. If most of his colleagues agreed that the varying standards for conducting recounts were a violation of equal protection, why not send the case back to the Florida Supreme Court and ask them to come up with one statewide standard for judging voter intent? That way, the recount could resume and proceed fairly. But the conservatives on the court didn't think that prolonging the process was an option. It was simply too late. The deadline for seating Florida's electors was December 12th. That was the very next day. Justice O'Connor, in particular, was worried that if the case went back to the Florida Supreme Court now, the dispute over electors could enter truly uncharted territory. Justice O'Connor said, this is a mess. we got to stop it now, because if we don't stop it now, it's going to go on and on, and it's going to get worse, and Bush is going to win in the end anyways. Not everyone thought the situation was so dire. Stevens, Breyer, Souter, and Ginsburg all believed that something could still be done in Florida. Or at least they believed that it wasn't the Supreme Court's job to make that call. 
Why did you think there was time and they didn't think there was time? Well, I didn't really feel I had the capacity to decide that issue. But if the Florida Supreme Court thought it could be worked out, we should let them give it a try. What ensued was a tug of war, with some members of the court planting their feet and trying to pull their colleagues over to their side. The hope was to come up with a ruling that wouldn't divide the court on a partisan basis. To that end, Kennedy and O'Connor decided to collaborate on an opinion reflecting whatever shreds of consensus were available. In it, they would argue that the statewide recount was a violation of equal protection, a position that seven of the justices seemed to agree with. The problem was that two of those seven, Breyer and Souter, thought the statewide recount could still be revived under a uniform ballot standard, while the other five thought the game was over. That meant the justices were still divided 5-4 on whether the recount had to end. Compromise would have been nice, but it wasn't necessary. Okay, also standing by, the moment of truth. It is the moment of truth. The Supreme Court may use this moment to determine who is the next president of the United States. There are many ways this decision could go. The Supreme Court handed down its ruling in Bush v. Gore at 10 p.m. on December 12th, the same day as the deadline for seating Florida's electors. The court printed copies of the 65-page decision and stacked them on a table in the press office for the taking. Journalists grabbed copies and sprinted outside to waiting TV cameras. The Supreme Court decision from Florida is now out. Let's go straight to the court because ABC's Jackie Judd and Jeffrey Tubin are standing by. Um, the... Peter, if you give Jeffrey, me one minute, I will. Let, me, be let, me, let me give you just a couple The typical Supreme Court opinion starts with a summary, a helpful guide to relevant constitutional questions and how they've been decided. But because the court's ruling on Bush v. Gore had been written so quickly, there was no time for that kind of signposting. That made interpreting the decision rather difficult. So we're going to have to keep sifting through this decision. It is extremely complicated with all these concurrences and dissents. And, and the phrasing of it is very, it's very badly written, to tell you the truth. And it sounds like... Bernie, let's work through this as carefully as we can. But let me get to the bottom line here. The judgment of the Supreme Court of Florida is reversed. That was The, the majority opinion was signed per curiam, meaning by the court. Usually, this was a sign that a decision was uncontroversial and it was meant to indicate that the court was speaking in one voice. But this opinion was not so straightforward. On the one hand, it said that seven justices agreed that the statewide recount was a violation of equal protection. But the far more consequential takeaway from the opinion was that a majority of the court, five out of the nine justices, thought the recount had to be shut down no matter what. And it seems that this really clearly is a victory for Governor Bush. I read this to say, here's the bottom line, We've reversed the Supreme Court opinion of Florida. This election is over. According to Gore lawyer David Boys, some of his colleagues initially thought that the court's decision was not necessarily the end of the line. There was still some hope among some members of the Gore camp that we could continue the fight in Florida, that we could try to get the vote count restarted. But at one point, Al Gore asked me what I thought. And I said, um, it was wrong to shoot you but you're still dead. There's no coming back from this. And in the end, what we had was a collision between the calendar and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution guaranteeing uh, equal protection under the law. As someone who teaches these issues, I would say this is probably the most significant decision in 30 years. We've had an appeal. We've taken that appeal. There is no appeal from the United States Supreme Court. The idea of a conservative majority rallying around equal protection seemed absurd to many liberal court watchers. Equal protection was maybe the most revered legal tenet of progressives, the centerpiece of landmark civil rights decisions like Brown v. Board of Education and Loving v. Virginia. Justice Ginsburg, who pioneered the use of equal protection arguments in fighting sex discrimination, was particularly horrified. While drafting her dissenting opinion, Ginsburg included a footnote saying that if there was any equal protection violation at work in Florida, it was the disenfranchisement of African-American voters. She was referencing reports of voter suppression, including efforts to purge felons from Florida's voter rolls. Justice Scalia read the footnote in a draft of Ginsburg's dissent and accused her of using Al Sharpton tactics. Ginsburg relented and took it out. Meanwhile, Justice Stevens decided to articulate his frustration in a dissent of his own. Here he is reading from the last paragraph. 
Time will one day heal the wound to that conference that will be inflicted by today's decision. One thing, however, is certain. Although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. I respectfully dissent. Now that's true. I think that's. A, I think I hit it right on the head. There was one more important and unusual thing about the court's decision in Bush v. Gore. It didn't set any precedent. The justices, in a highly unusual move, said their ruling is limited to the present circumstances only. Meaning, Justice O'Connor was always cognizant of the downstream effects of the court's actions. And during the drafting process on Bush v. Gore, she told Kennedy that she wanted it to be clear that the court was only responding to the specific facts of the case at hand. And so they added a sentence stipulating just that and acknowledging that the problem of equal protection in election processes generally presents many complexities. To critics, it sounded like the majority was basically admitting that the equal protection argument did not deserve to be taken seriously. Here again is Dahlia Lithwick. I do remember absolutely being shocked by the court having to explicitly say, in the manner of Mission Impossible, like, this is going to disappear in a proof of smoke in 10 seconds, so read it quickly, because it doesn't stand for everything. For me, that was anathema to what the court does. You know, the court sets out clear, lasting precedent for to guide the next case. It doesn't say, like, dudes, we were totally painted into a corner, and so we're going to make some stuff up, and good luck. Uh, and and so I remember that being, uh, to me, the thing that grabbed me by the throat was they don't even have the courage of their own convictions, much less, you know, the, the ability to, to resolve this in any binding precedential way. Peter, tonight Al Gore's aides describe him as calm, at peace with himself and his decision, and very focused on his task tonight to do his part to unite the country. On December 13th, 36 days after Election Day, Al Gore gave a televised address in which he conceded the 2000 election for a second and final time. Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. Later, George W. Bush offered a few conciliatory remarks of his own. Vice President Gore and I put our hearts and hopes into our campaigns. We shared similar emotions. So I understand how difficult this moment must be for Vice President Gore and his family. The only thing left to do was make it official. On December 18th, Florida's presidential electors gathered at the State House in Tallahassee. As expected, all 25 Republican electors voted for George W. Bush, while his brother Jeb looked on. Thank you for your attendance and cooperation in fulfilling this awesome duty. Uh, this meeting of the presidential electors is now adjourned. Thank you all very much, and God bless. In Washington, the task of officially presiding over the Electoral College tally fell to none other than Al Gore, whose position as vice president also made him the president of the Senate. The whole number of the electors appointed to vote for president of the United States is The third vice president in history to preside over the certification of his own defeat. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for president of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. May God bless our new president and our new vice president, and may God bless the United States of America. When the election was finally over and Bush was inaugurated as president, it seemed like the stage was set for Sandra Day O'Connor to announce that she was stepping down from the court. But she didn't. According to Evan Thomas, she felt that her role in putting Bush in the White House made retirement untenable. The standard wisdom is that she voted for Bush so that she could retire because she wanted to retire because it sounded like that's what they wanted to do based on that dinner party outburst. But in fact, 
the opposite is true. Because she voted for Bush, she knew that she could not retire. It would look like the fix was in. That she, it was, she knew that it would look like she voted for Bush so that she could retire. So she said to her family, look, no White House events. We're not going to hang around with the Bush family. We're not retiring. And she didn't, not for another five years, until her husband's Alzheimer's was so bad she felt she had to retire. As John's Alzheimer's worsened, O'Connor often brought him to the court with her. He sat on the couch in her office, reading the newspaper while she worked. When he occasionally wandered off, Supreme Court guards were always around to keep an eye on him. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court's docket filled up with cases that touched on Bush administration policy. These were major cases, about affirmative action, the right to die, the rights of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And if anyone still believed that the 2000 election had been low stakes, the string of decisions that came out of the Supreme Court in its aftermath served as a reminder of just how much had been on the line. When O'Connor finally retired in 2005, she was replaced with Samuel Alito, a relentlessly conservative justice whose arrival shifted the ideological balance of the court. In private, O'Connor expressed deep frustration with Alito, and she watched with disappointment as the court tilted away from her doctrine on abortion rights, affirmative action, and a host of other issues. She was so full of regret that she, you know, immediately on her retirement and being replaced by Alito and watching all of the doctrine that she had had her thumbprint on got erased within like two years. You know, every place in which she had been the decider goes the other way. And I think she really did feel as though she couldn't say it out loud, but that she had done something like catastrophically bad for the country that she didn't know how to make reparations for. And I think much more so than anyone else, she really carried that around with her. In 2013, for the first time ever, O'Connor publicly expressed second thoughts about the ruling in Bush v. Gore. The Supreme Court probably added to the problem at the end of the day, she told the Chicago Tribune. Maybe, she said, the court shouldn't have even taken the case. Late last year, Justice O'Connor announced that she was suffering from dementia, most likely Alzheimer's, and she retired from public life. In the wake of Al Gore's concession, a handful of news organizations went back to Florida's ballots and tried to figure out whether the right person had been elected president. The count of more than 61,000 punch cards, optical scan, even handwritten votes, tallied by a team from the Miami Herald, USA Today, and a private accounting firm. The first major result was released by a consortium of newspapers that included USA Today and the Miami Herald. It came out in April 2001, about two and a half months into George W. Bush's presidency. The study gamed out what would have happened if the recount mandated by the Florida Supreme Court had been allowed to continue. It looked at possible outcomes under four different ballot standards, ranging from the most lenient to the most strict. Undervote ballots, those now famous hanging, dimpled and pregnant chads. Ironically, the study found that Gore would have only won under the strictest standard. And even then, the margin would have only been three votes. Gore wins using a strict vote counting method he did not support. Bush wins using a more liberal method he opposed. A second major post-mortem of the election came out just after its first anniversary. This one was the product of a million-dollar effort that included the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the St. Petersburg Times, and the Palm Beach Post. Together, they commissioned a nonpartisan research institute at the University of Chicago to spend 10 months going through the 175,000 undervotes and overvotes from Florida. Trained coders, often operating in teams, viewed but did not touch disputed ballots and wrote down what they saw. According to that study, if every undervote and overvote in Florida had been examined by hand, Gore would have won the state by a slim margin. Under those circumstances, Gore would have gained to a plus 171. Largely but as the news organizations themselves acknowledged, this was neither here nor there. Though it may have been true in theory, there had pretty much never been a scenario in which all of Florida's undervotes and overvotes were going to be counted. If you imagine the 36 days after Election Day as a choose-your-own-adventure, there was just no fork in the road when that was a serious possibility. 
even before it was published, an LA Times editor was quoted saying that it was entirely possible that most readers would look at the report and yawn. The St. Petersburg Times asked whether anyone other than political junkies would care. And the Washington Post media critic Howard Kurtz said the recount now felt like some distant civil war battle. There was good reason to be skeptical about the public's appetite for relitigating the election. Maybe you've already done the math in your head, but the first anniversary of November 2000 was November 2001, so two months after the September 11th attacks. Try to remember the kind of September we just had. What consumed us last December is a paragraph for history now. A recent George Bush's approval rating was close to 90%. A poll published in early November showed that if the election was held again, Bush would beat Gore nationally by 26 points. Even Gore's former campaign chairman, Bill Daley, said that anyone who was still speculating about the election results was wasting their breath. On the editorial page of the Tampa Tribune, both parties received praise for showing restraint at a time when the core temperature of the former World Trade Center still hovered near 1,000 degrees. In subsequent years, whenever anyone asked Justice Antonin Scalia about the court's decision in Bush v. Gore, he would respond, get over it. In his book on Justice O'Connor, Evan Thomas reported that Scalia privately referred to the equal protection argument used to end the Florida recount as a piece of shit. Fellow cats, mess your gears. Won't you lend your politic ears? Fiasco is presented by Luminary and Prologue Projects. If you're enjoying the series and want to hear more, head over to luminarypodcasts.com and subscribe. You can hear bonus episodes from the season, including extended interviews with Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris and the late Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. You can also check out Season 2 of Fiasco on the Iran-Contra scandal, or Season 3, and the struggle to desegregate Boston's public schools in the 1970s. For a list of books, articles, and documentaries that we relied on to research this episode of Fiasco, click the link in the show notes. The guy who can get you some shoe fly pie at the racetrack I can... Fiasco is produced by Andrew Parsons, Madeline Kaplan, Ula Culpa, and me, Leon Nafok. Our script editor was Daniel Riley. Our editorial consultant was Camilla Hammer and we received additional editorial support from Lisa Chase. Our music and score are by Nick Sylvester of God Mode, with additional music from Alexis Quadrado. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Music licensing courtesy of Anthony Roman. Audio mix by Rob Byers, Michael Raphael, and Johnny Vince Evans of Final Final V2. Thanks to the NBC News Archive, C-SPAN, CNN, and Channel 20 in Palm Beach for the archival material you heard in today's show. Thanks for listening. Won't you give me one more?